To answer is human, to question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Welcome back to another episode of the Hidden Gateway podcast. I am your host, Justin Williams. Today's guest is Masayub. Masayub is a firearms and self-defense instructor. He has taught police techniques and civilian self-defense to both law enforcement officers and private citizens since 1974. He was the director of the Lethal Force Institute in Concord, New Hampshire from 1981 to 2009 and now operates his own company. Ayub has appeared on as an expert witness in several trials. He has also served as a part-time police officer in New Hampshire since 1972 and retired in 2017 with the rank of captain from the Gratham, New Hampshire Police Department. On September 30th, 2020, Ayub was named president of the Second Amendment Foundation. Mr. Ayub, welcome to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. How you doing? Doing good, brother. Just call me Mass. Nobody needs Mass. to call me Mister unless I'm arresting them or they're cross-examining <laughs> me. Or I'm not arrest people anymore. All right, all right. Very good, very good. Mass it is, then Mass it is. So you know, in that in that intro, Mass, I you know gave a little bit about your background. The way I usually like to start these interviews is to give the the guest yourself an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about you. Um, you know, how did you get into, you know, police, uh, being a, being an officer and then uh, firearms instructor in, in your career up to this point? Well, the firearms came before the badge. Uh, I'm third generation of my family in this country. Uh, all my grandparents were immigrants. Um, on my dad's side, uh, both he and my grandfather had been involved in shootings in Boston, Massachusetts. And by the time I came along in mid-20th century, uh, I found myself growing up in an armed household. Uh, My dad had guns in the jewelry store, carried a gun, there were guns in the home. And I learned to use the guns like learning to use a fire extinguisher or anything else in the house. Uh, it It was kind of understood from the beginning. When you're 16 years old, you'll get your driver's license and your hunting license. And when you're 21, you'll get your carry permit. And along about age six or something, I discovered two things. I discovered there was a part of America at that time that was still segregated. I said, shit, that ain't right. And I found about the same time there were parts of America where honest people couldn't carry guns. And I said, shit, that ain't right either. And both of those have been part of my ethos uh, for the rest of my life. 
Uh, my dad started me shooting with a 22 at age four, handguns at age nine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, when I started working part-time at age 12 in the family jewelry store, uh, it was an armed premises, and I carried a gun there myself, which was legal in that time and place. And uh, got into competitive shooting informally in my early teens, formally in my late teens. Uh, got into police work in my early 20s, uh, became a police instructor in 1972, and that set me on a course to gather as much knowledge as I could. So I go places like Smith and Wesson Academy. And over the the years, as I got into writing in the early 1970s, I started writing for the police magazines. And that took me every place from LAPD to NYPD and a whole lot of places in between. Wow. Uh, sitting down with their firearms instructors, finding out what what's actually happening here what stuff is working and what stuff is not working in terms of everything from guns and ammunition to, more importantly, the training and tactics. Uh, 1981, I started teaching private citizens. And what had happened in, in my early days, age 12 through about 14 or 15, I was carrying a loaded gun in a place of business open to the public. And I was like, okay, kids going to need to know the rules here. Mm-hmm. And back then, if, if you go back and look in the archives, you know, we had books on how to win gunfights that went back to the 19th century. There was not a damn thing for the ordinary citizen about when can you use this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, when is it legal to draw? When is it illegal to draw? When, where can you carry? Where can't you? And some of some of the uh, customers in my dad's store included the chief of police in the city, uh, one very kind and patient judge, and a few attorneys. And all of them were kind enough to sit down with a 12-year-old kid that had an unusual problem and say, kid, here's what you need to know, and here's where you can li- find out more. And that sent me in turn into legal libraries. Uh, we lived in the capital city at that time, Concord, New Hampshire, so I had access to the state legal library. And not until much later did I realize what the librarians must have been thinking when this young teenage kid was in looking up, when can I kill people, you know? <laughs> but uh, I remember thinking, holy crap, nobody, there were no books about this. No, there was none of this in American Rifleman Magazine or, or anyplace else. And I remember thinking, somebody ought to write a book about this side of it. And I also remember thinking, when I grow up, if nobody's written a book about it, maybe I will. There you go. And funny thing about that, uh, by the time I grew up, nobody had, so I did. Uh, My first book on it came out in 1980, In the Gravest Extreme. Uh, That's still available and still selling. Uh, Not because I was a great writer or anything, but simply because Deadly Force Law is one of the most stable, mature bodies of law that we have in American jurisprudence. Mm. Uh, I started teaching civilians at Chapman Academy in Columbia, Missouri, and sorry about the sirens, in uh, 1981. Uh, I had met Ray in 1978 at the uh, IPSC Nationals, uh, National Championships, International Practical Shooting Confederation in the Los Angeles area. 
And I had taken his advanced shoot pistol class in 1980, and he'd become very much a mentor for me. He read the book and said, how about we do a class nobody's done before? It'll be half me, that is Ray Chapman, the world champion of combat shooting, teaching them how to shoot. And you, meaning me, teaching them when to shoot. Uh, That got a lot of publicity nationwide. Uh, The class was very successful. And Ray said, look, you ought to open your own school and be teaching that side of it. And I thought, okay, instead of traveling around the country all the time, uh, you know, gathering the research for writing, at that time I was a full-time freelance writer. I said, well, heck, uh, you know, I'll teach a class a month and, you know, it'll be fun. And that turned out to be famous last words. Uh, By 1982, (laughs) it was my full-time job at Lethal Force Institute. And it's been full-time ever since. Uh, The police work, as you noted, was part-time. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I learned a lot, but it's it's not really what I teach from. Uh, What I teach from is the accumulated training, which has been pretty extensive, and everything from homicide investigation to tactics, to use of deadly force, and, of course, the shooting side of it, uh, cross-trained and the hand-to-hand side, the batons and all of that. And uh, essentially, since 82, I've been full-time instructor, uh, part-time writer, 20-some books now and a bunch of articles, and uh, part-time expert witness. I started doing that in 1979. And that I do teach from. Uh, Being in trial is where you really see the dirty tricks, the underhanded tactics. Uh, You understand why attorneys are told in law school, if the law is on your side, argue the law. If the facts are on your side, argue the facts. And if neither the law nor the facts are on your side, argue with every witness the other side puts up. I, I can't say I've seen every dirty trick yet, but I think I've seen most of them by now. And that's one of the things I warn our students about. Uh, Marty Hayes and I, for some years now, uh, Marty was the founder of Firearms Academy of Seattle and one of the best instructors in the country. And in 2007, he formed the Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network to function for the, the members the way a police officer's union would function for an officer if the officer was criminally charged for having done the right thing in a use of force situation. Uh, That created a whole cottage industry that we have now of post-self-defense support groups. Uh, Marty has been an expert witness for the court since like 1990. And he and I, for many years now, have taught a deadly force instructor class together. We're doing two of them this year. And any of your listeners, if they're interested, uh, can find all of that, including my own training, at Masad Ayub Group. Dot com. So essentially, that's where I am now. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm involved with the Second Amendment Foundation, currently serving as president, and should take uh, this moment to say I'm speaking tonight just for myself and not as a spokesperson for any organization. Very good. Very good. I'm glad you mentioned that, being president of that organization, because uh, one of the questions that I want to ask you is regarding the Second Amendment. It seems like the current administration, um, you know, most people is just simply say they want to take our guns. Right. Um, I want to know what are your thoughts on the political side as to whether we will see increased attacks against the Second Amendment in light of the several high profile mass shootings as of late? How should law abiding citizens 
work to defend their rights in this regard? Oh, it's, it's become literally a culture war. Uh, <clears throat> you'll find certain polarized debates in a time of political identity when people's, you know, people's professed uh, political affiliation seems to take over their personality. Uh, it's become a whole lot of argumentum ad hominem, attacking one another personally instead of debating the, the very real issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see it as gun owners' civil rights. Now, every year I speak at the Gun Rights Policy Conference, uh, hosted by Second Amendment Foundation and the uh, Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. And the first thing I tell people when it's my turn to speak is, look, I got to tell you, I don't believe in gun rights. Guns are objects. Objects don't have rights. This is a civil rights issue, and it is absolutely a human rights issue. If you look in a history, Lord William Blackstone, the, the great commentator on the common law, said that self-defense was the highest of all human rights. Mm. And that's the issue. The guns are merely a symbol. And the whole gun control push, in my opinion, is empty symbolism. This is about human rights. Human rights. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, in 2020, like millions of Americans, I uh, purchased my first firearm. In fact, I purchased three. Um, and, you know, I'm in Arizona, so it's open carry. And you don't need a CCW. However, I went ahead and took a class, got my CCW as well as took um, a couple shooting classes as well. You know, because I was, you know, I was never a quote unquote gun person, you know, not because I didn't like guns. It was just something I never got into. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, It is, um, you know, it's a human right. It's a civil issue. And for um, anyone to try to take that away from us, it's, um, you know, I'll go as far as saying it's inhumane, you know, because we have to have the right to protect ourselves. No doubt about it. Um, One question that I want to ask you that, uh, that a good friend of mine, what uh, it wants me to ask you is um, basic aspects about characteristics of different weapons for home defense and what you prefer and why. I've always heard that you should always have a shotgun in your home. Is that true or is it just like a personal preference type situation there? Well, it's it's actually something I suggest a holistic approach to. Uh, we don't have, you know, one uh, one set of shoes or one set of uh, clothing that we wear every day of every season. And we, we have to adapt with the firearm as well. I see the handgun and the long gun as the initial separation. Uh, the long gun I see as artillery. Uh, the home has been breached. Someone has kicked down the door. We've gathered our loved ones in the master bedroom or whatever has been chosen as what, what's colloquially called the safe room, where the family is going to gather if there is such an emergency. One of us is on the phone to 911. We've counted noses. All of us are on this side of the door. Anybody kicking down that bedroom door is obviously the home invader. It wouldn't be the cops because we are on the line with 911 will have asked, are the police here yet? And they'll have said no. Anybody kicking down that door now is trying to harm me or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren that I'm old enough to have now. And at that point, we're probably past verbal crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. And I want something that's going to put maximum force into anything trying to harm my loved ones. And that means either the carbine or the shotgun. 
So I see the long gun as artillery. I see the handgun as infantry. If I have to move, if I have to uh, uh, gather up uh, one of the little great grandkids and carry them in one hand back to the master bedroom as fast as I can move, I can't do that and hold a two-handed weapon effectively, too. I can do it with a handgun. One hand holding the kid, one hand on the gun. Uh, One of the points that I've always made and put in my uh, friend of the court brief uh, for the uh, Heller decision uh, back in 2008 and was basically repeated by Justice Scalia was that one advantage of the handgun in the home, it allows one hand to be holding the communications device talking to 911 and the other hand holding the defensive weapon. Uh, if I have to answer a door at three o'clock in the morning, uh, first, my advice to people is why the hell are you answering a door to an unexpected right. knock at three o'clock in the morning? <laughs> right. But if I, uh, I'd warn people, the single person most likely to be pounding on your door at that time of night is the police come to tell you they're, they're looking for a dangerous uh, suspect who's loose in the community and trying to make sure you, he hasn't broken into your home and taken you hostage, or perhaps telling you they just recovered your stolen car that you didn't know was missing before because they stole it out of your driveway after you went to bed. Yeah. And if you open that door to the cops with a gun in your hand, you are going to get shot. The handgun can be either in a holster if you happen to have one on or simply stuffed in the waistband behind you as you stand edgeways. Peek out. Good evening, officer. What's the problem? No gun has become visible. No mistaken identity shooting occurs. So I see a, a role for both gun, uh, both types of guns. When you break it down into uh, do we want a carbine or a shotgun, The shotgun is certainly devastating in terms of anti-personnel potency. But one one thing we have to look at with the home defense weapon, the the home defense long gun or any home defense gun really is kind of like the the patrol rifle or in the old days, the, the shotgun that we had in the patrol cars. The handgun is a personal weapon. Each officer has their own. And uh, if three different shifts are going to drive the same patrol car, three different people are going to have to have access to the exact same long gun. And if one is a five-foot-tall, 105-pound female, and the other is a six-foot-three, 225-pound male, that gun may fit one of them, may fit the other. It sure ain't going to fit both, and it might fit neither. The uh, AR-15 or pistol-caliber carbine, whether you go two-two-three or a 9-millimeter carbine, the the supposedly evil assault weapon feature of the collapsing oh, stock right. allows it with an instant, with this movement that I'm demonstrating here as you and I talk on Zoom, allows it to fit the smallest, shortest arm person who's authorized and competent to use it to the largest, longest arm one. Okay. So it, as a pool weapon, it much better serves a situation where multiple members of the family might be authorized to use that firearm in a home invasion, just as multiple people in the family have been taught how to use the fire extinguisher and are authorized to use that if a fire breaks out in the kitchen. Um, basically, I leave it up to the individual because they and only they uh, know what their home situation is, how skilled each person using the gun might be. Uh, the two two three is really easy to shoot, the one downside being it's deafening blast indoors. Uh, but that's going to be true to some degree with a shotgun or anything else. 
And when I hear people say, ooh, you might lose some hearing firing your gun inside the house, you're only going to fire it if the alternative is death. How much are you going to hear in the grave? Right. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) If you're worried about it, I recommend people have active hearing protectors that, you know, reduce the loud sounds but amplify the small sounds. You've got to keep them somewhere. Keep it by the long gun. Uh And in the instant it takes you to put it on, if you do fire, you're not going to have severe hearing problems. Uh, The better ones will actually amplify small sounds, and you can hear danger coming more effectively than you could with the naked ear. And finally, if you ever do have to take somebody at gunpoint, when you know they think they're hard and they think you're soft and they might challenge you, when they see you wearing earmuffs, they know you're serious about shooting. <laughs> so, I know that's right. That, that's that's right. where my advice comes from. Uh, beyond that, the selection of the firearm has to it has to go to the abilities of the user, uh, the habituation the user might already have. Uh, the circumstances in which they might see them see themselves using them. A whole lot of folks, once they bought a handgun for home defense, find out, you know, if I have a concealed carry permit, I can see times when I'd really like to be able to carry this thing outside the house, which today is easier than ever. Did either of us see it coming that we'd see the day when more than half the states were permitless carry for law-abiding citizens? Mm. So we're, we are we are winning one side of this fight. That's right. But uh, the fight continues, as we're seeing in New Jersey, as we're seeing in New York. uh, Since the California too, right? California, some are and some aren't. Uh, Okay. North and south, Southern California is as well as you know in San Diego. Southern California and northern, southern is, you know, southern and the Bay Area. Uh, when one of my kids moved to the Bay Area, I said, hey, Dad, how do I get my concealed carry permit? My answer was, you've got to get elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors because they're the only ones who get them. Wow. Uh, Northern California, many of the counties, Sacramento County, for example, have been shell issue for a while, well before the Bruin decision. So it, it kind of, you know, it's kind of like East and West Berlin, different parts of the state. Uh, seem to have different politics. Um, and even in the so-called blue California, I see, I see a whole lot more uh, red in Northern California than I, I do in Southern California. Interesting. So a lot of it, you, you can't judge just by the state. New York, until Governor Hockle's response to the Bruin decision, had been much the same. Uh, Southern, Cal- Southern New York, uh, New York City, the islands, you have to be white, male, rich, and politically connected to get a carry permit. Okay. Northern part of the state, up around Buffalo and so forth, wasn't that tough. Uh, when my oldest daughter was 19 years old, at a, as a student in Syracuse University, she got a New York State concealed carry permit. Nice. So uh, we, we can't be saying this entire state is bad or this entire part of the country is bad or good. Um, we have red states with blue islands, Florida and Texas being classic examples. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we have to look at where we are, and we have to follow the elections. Uh, the uh, the George Soros-funded and elected prosecutors who seem to be on a vendetta against armed citizens yes. is not a right-wing myth. It is happening. It's documentable. Yes. And I've literally seen it happen. 
Wow. What was that uh, case you mentioned a few minutes back where you provided input? Did you say the Hellas? Was that it? Uh, yeah. Uh, Heller versus District of Columbia. Many of us uh, put in front of the court briefs what are called amicus curiae briefs. And uh, needless to say, we gun people were very happy with the outcome of Heller. Uh, it <clears throat> finally clarified that despite the, the way people misinterpret the, the wording of the Second Amendment, that looking at the history behind it, uh, the legal scholarship over the years, much of which was funded by Alan Gottlieb's uh, brilliant foresight with Second Amendment Foundation, made it clear this was the preservation of an individual right, and the National Guard had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, that was reaffirmed uh, in the, to a degree in the McDonald case in 2010, and was utterly reaffirmed in uh, Clarence Thomas's brilliant 2022 decision uh, or uh, opinion in uh, Bruin, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. But we still hear people saying, no, no, it's about the National Guard. And it's just such a slap in the face to common sense, because think about it. The framers of the, the Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, were... The, the framers of the Bill of Rights were, for the most part, veterans of the Revolutionary War. The, the gunfire of, of that event was literally still ringing in their ears because most of them probably had tinnitus from the musket fire and the, uh, <laughs> the, the cannon fire. For, for that to be a, a, a way to empower a National Guard, it would have said the people who won the Revolution decided what would have, had that law been in place when they began their fight, would have meant the only people empowered would have been Tories loyal to King George, duty-bound to crush the rebellion and kill their fellow American colonists. And no one with a three-digit IQ can possibly believe that was the intent of the framers. And yet we still hear, because of the this whole political identity thing. We still hear Second Amendments about the National Guard, and there's no individual right to bear arms, and therefore no individual right to protect yourselves. And if I may say so, it was bullshit then, and it was bullshit now. And I agree with you 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mass, let's go back to that scenario that you spoke on just a bit ago. A person is at home with their family, two in the morning, you know, all the kids are in bed. The man of the house, is, his wife is, is right there with them. They hear a loud noise, and he immediately knows someone breaks in his, has broken into his home. He confronts the intruder, shoots him. Or, 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 or how about this? Out driving one day, road rage, road rage incident. Someone pulls a gun. The other person pulls their gun, shoots him. Police arrives. I've always heard that even in self-defense, you're going to go to jail and you're going to be questioned. But one thing that always comes up is should that person who um, used deadly force in self-defense, should they talk to the police or should they not and just wait to be advised by the attorney? My advice has always been uh, give a limited statement to the police, but know what to say. Uh, now, <coughs> excuse me. For many years, I've taught what I call a five-point checklist. And I say this 
having changed my opinion on it over the years. My first book in 1980 on Deadly Force uh, in the Gravest Extreme, virtually every attorney and judge I talked to said, never talk to the police. Uh, you'll say something stupid that inculpates yourself, and you'll talk your way in a prison. And over the years, I saw so many cases <clears throat> whereby not talking to the police, evidence at the scene that could have been found and could have exculpated that has proven the innocence of, of the defendant was lost. They failed to point out witnesses whose testimony would have supported what they were saying about defending themselves. And as a result, those witnesses didn't want to get involved and that testimony disappeared. <clears throat> so basically, my five-point checklist, first, overriding it, my advice is you be the one to call 911. The whole criminal justice system is geared on the concept that whoever calls the police is the victim complainant, and whoever doesn't call them first automatically becomes the suspect. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, of course, it never leave the scene unless you know there, there are multiple opponents there and you have to escape because that triggers the whole flight equals guilt thing that's been a, a human ethos since pre-biblical times. Call the police. Explain what happened. And what happened is not what was going to be in the forefront of their mind is I shot somebody. That sounds like a confession, and that's not the actual dynamic. What the police need to know is why you had to shoot somebody. So I say begin with the active dynamic. This man attacked me. This man tried to ki kidnap my child. This man was trying to burn down my house with my children and whatever it was. Second, indicate compliance with the police. I will, I will sign a complaint. Officer, I'll testify against them. You know, whatever. Third, point out the evidence before it disappears. If there's been a shooting, that scene is going to be trampled by emergency medical personnel and police. Uh, the law enforcement, all, all the public safety services, fire department, police department, emergency medical service, saving life is the, the ultimate priority. Gathering evidence is way down on the list. The things, uh, uh, a dropped weapon can be kicked into the gutter and lost or picked up by a bystander if you don't point it out. Uh, spent shell casings on the ground get kicked out of the way or lost. He fired three shots at you with his 380. You were shooting back with a nine millimeter. And his three, not, uh, 380 rounds got kicked into the gutter. Uh, if you had pointed them out first, it would, you, you would have been a whole lot better off. Yeah. That fourth, point out the witnesses, as I said. And finally, it's at that point. One has to have the discipline to stop talking. And say, officer, I've been in a very high-stress situation, or words to this effect. Uh, never give a rehearsed statement. Uh, you'll have my full cooperation after I've spoken with counsel. And stick to that. Where people do get to get, get in trouble talking to the police, 90-plus percent of the time, in my experience, it's been because they are guilty, and they said something that tied them to the crime they committed. Or they didn't know what to say. If you know what needs to be said, you're not going to make the mistake. And the attorneys who still say never talk to the police and the instructors who say that, ask them, why should I never talk to the police? And the answer you'll always get is you'll start babbling and say something stupid. Okay, yes, okay. Now, 
I don't know. Somebody says that to me. I, I don't take that as a compliment. <laughs> now, it does happen, but here's why it happens. And there's a direct parallel to the fight itself. Okay, you're telling me after the fight's over, I'm going to be babbling like an idiot and my brains are going to turn into a puddle of diarrhea. Why didn't that happen during the fight, which is a whole hell of a lot more stressful? The very fact that you have just won a gunfight, you have defeated the apex predator of the planet Earth in a battle to the death, but now you are smart enough to do that. You are cool enough to do that. You know how to handle that. But now, all of a sudden, your brain is going to melt and you're going to turn into a puddle of crap? I don't know. I, I see you shaking your head no. I don't buy it either. But it's amazing how many people do. But here is here is why some of the some people do make that mistake. We, we're all I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with fight or flight response in the human. Okay, the the highest level of body alarm reaction. You think you're about to die, and you have to one way or another fight for your life with extreme exertion, knowing that in the next few seconds you could cease to exist and never see your loved ones again. The one thing Dr. Walter Cannon had right when he defined way over a century ago fight-or-flight response in the human at Harvard Medical School, he named it as a two-way branching, and people like you and me who've studied this know it's really a three-way branching. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And the ones who freeze, if they survived, and you can ask them later, why did you just stand there? They always give you the same answer. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Now, let's flash back to the other scene. You won the fight. Why would somebody, and somebody say, the cops show up and they say, buddy, lady, what happened? Why would someone say something stupid or start babbling? Because they didn't know what to say. If you know what to do, you're going to overcome that fight or flight response, do it and win. If you know what to say, you're not going, what needs to be said, you're not going to say the wrong thing or something that could be taken the wrong way. And that's why I give the advice that I give. That's solid. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I like that a lot. So, Mass, as you know, as you're very aware, we are living in some extremely chaotic times. I always say it's a world of chaos and confusion, right? And it seems since the pandemic, there has been an uptick in violence and just people losing their cool, as well as crime. What do you think is the cause of this? Some people well, think it's have to... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Lots of things going on. <clears throat> First, if you look back in the history of it, we were all there, but it's easy to forget. As the pandemic began in 2020, the sociologists, the mayors, the pundits, everybody was making it clear you're going to be on your own. Okay, if we've got, if in New York City, for example, we've got 36,000 cops, any of those cops who comes down with a virus is going to be have to be taken off the street and quarantined for two weeks. Well, any other cop who's dealt with them that night, which is going to be many cops in a metropolitan city, will have to be quarantined also. We could lose 20%, 30% of the officers that we have. The same would be true for the fire department. The same would be true for emergency medical. And the public saying, holy crap, uh, maybe the survivalists were right. We could be on our own. And that was what triggered the big uh, gun buying uh, spree that we saw happen then, and which continues to today. 
Now, that was concurrent with the, uh, the George Floyd incident, the whole defund the police movement, uh, the BLM, the tremendous media hostility to the police, and particularly the political hostility. For the first time, politicians, usually those who identified as progressive, uh, were demanding police be defunded. And indeed, we were seeing people demand that the police be eliminated in some cities. Well, let's look at two branches of society. <clears throat> the ordinary law-abiding citizen is already finding out there aren't enough cops to respond anymore. We may be on our own. And what is the criminal community saying? Well, hell, if there aren't going to be that many cops anymore, we have way more free reign to prey on whoever and whatever we feel like preying on. Right. And you have seen the results uh, if you look at the city of San Francisco, for example, oh, my uh, to yes. some degree Chicago. Uh, retailers closing major stores en masse because of the uh, the shoplifting and occasionally the literally the raids uh, that are taking place. So all of that is contributing to the downward spiral. Uh, we're having a whole lot of cops saying, hey, I didn't sign up to be condemned as the Gestapo of America. Uh, I think I'll take what I've got vested in my pension, leave and go do something else. Any police department, including the last one I served, uh, which was a smaller agency, but all of them, uh, in the past, we might have you know, dozens of applicants for a single position. Today, we are finding a position becomes available. We get a handful of applicants, none of whom turn out to be the kind of person you'd want carrying a gun and a badge and coming to your house when there was trouble. Gotcha. So... We're seeing the police service being increasingly crippled. We're watching the public see that. And we're also watching the criminal elements see that. And I'm afraid, I, I can't, I won't say society is circling the drain just yet, but there is a definite downward spiral in progress. And when people ask, why are people who never bought guns before buying them? That, I think, is the best answer that I can give you from my perspective. That's solid, and I love how you connected the dots with all three right there, and it makes sense. It's very logical. So thank you for sharing that. And one thing you mentioned was uh, 2020, you know, uh, the riots, George Floyd situation, BLM marches. You had this young man, Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Everybody knows the story. I saw the video a few times. Yeah. I want your opinion on that shooting as well as the court case. Now, I'm going to give you my my opinion on the shooting. Sure. I'm, I'm no expert, obviously. But from what I saw, it looked justified. I totally the- agree with you. Uh, what saved him is that we live in a video world, and every one of the four people he pulled the triggers on, uh, it was recorded. Uh, the poor, innocent, unarmed man uh, who was his first alleged victim uh, was on video earlier threatening to kill people. The jury was not allowed to know that he had just that night gotten out of the psych ward at the hospital where he had been committed for suicidal ideation. And all of us in the business know suicide is in a directed homicide. The suicidal are by definition homicidal. He had been threatening to kill people. He lunges at that kid. The state's own medical examiner admitted the evidence showed his hands were on the rifle he was trying to take away from that kid when the kid fired for one second uh, the shots that killed him. Then the entire crowd turns on him. 
He's on video running and trying to escape. Guy hits him in the head with the uh, the skateboard, which if you look at a damn skateboard, if you remember the uh, the axe handles the KKK used to wield during the uh, the days of integration, uh, picture the 44 Magnum version of an axe handle, that narrow edge with all the sectional density of the wood behind it and heavy metal attached to it is, is brutal. It would be skull crushing. And he actually did hit the kid with it, fortunately a glancing blow. It was attempted murder. The kid returned fire and shot him. And that was as justified as the first one. The guy who, who, the survivor, the guy who did the flying kick at his head, when you kick a man in the head while he is down, that is absolutely deadly force. Oh, yes. Uh, the shod foot is seen as a deadly weapon in those circumstances. He fired a double tap that went into the air and missed the guy. And just like every other one of those shootings that night, as you've correctly observed, as soon as the threat stopped, Kyle Rittenhouse stopped shooting. And the, uh, uh, he fired the one shot into the guy that hit him with the skateboard. And when that man turned away, he had stopped. And the last man, uh, Grosskreutz, if you watch the video and the still photos, he is literally pointing a loaded Glock 27 that he is illegally carrying at the young man's head when the kid fired the shot that, as Grosskreutz said, vaporized his bicep. And when he turned and ran away screaming, Rittenhouse did not shoot. He had been running toward the police lines for protection. He ra he's on video raising his hands, trying to surrender to the police. And they tell him, to get out of the street, kid. <laughs> so he got in his car, left, and as soon as he was somewhere safe, uh, called the police and turned himself in. And every single element of that and that long, drawn-out trial was brilliantly established by uh, his defense attorneys. That said, the kid is still a pariah today. He was demonized. He is still demonized. We're seeing people in the media, after he has been acquitted by the justice system in front of the eyes of the world, accusing him of murder. Right. Mother of God. And it's, it's like the Zimmerman case all over again. Zimmerman now, it's been, it's been a decade since his acquittal and 11 years since his shooting. Uh, George Zimmerman literally had to change his name and go into hiding. Uh, because of all the death threats he got and the one murder attempt on him that nobody wants to talk about, where the guy uh, fired at him with a three fifty seven Magnum, missed him by inches, and is now doing uh, 20 or 25, uh, I think 20 years in uh, Stark Penitentiary in Florida. I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, anybody, anybody can look it up. People don't, don't believe the narrative. You know, the, the history of it is, Politically motivated prosecutors, which you certainly had in the Zimmerman case and most certainly had in the Rittenhouse case, will tell the press and therefore tell the world, you're evil, you did wrong, it's murder, murder, malice, malice. Defense lawyers are taught from their first week in law school, don't try your case in the press. It'll all come out in court. And an accusation that is not answered, that is not defended against, is seen by the public as an admission of guilt. That's why I tell people, select an attorney who will speak for you. There's, There are many courts. There is criminal court. There is civil court where you get sued. Don't forget the court of public opinion, the, the world you and your family are going to have to go back to after you've been acquitted.
Yeah, I remember that. That media, they were they drug that kid through the mud. I mean, it was horrible. He was, you know, they made it seem like he was guilty um, before he even went to trial. Like, oh, he did this horrible thing yeah. and, you know, pretty much aligned with the agenda that was going on at the time. And that fact, it still continues to go on today. This whole ridiculous yeah. uh Woke, wokeism that's going on in this world yeah. and and the media is a is a huge tool in that um it's almost as if they're you know projecting massacre 24 7 all the time so I, I want your thoughts on that with the media why, why is this why why is the media so direct in those efforts um with uh making people look bad and, and talking down on guns w- would you say that they are just following a directive from those who want guns bad banned well, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a giant one-world conspiracy by the left. Uh, a great many people in the media are left of center in their personal politics, and that, I think, clearly shows. Um, if you watch Chris Cuomo trying to do the news and it always turns into his personal editorial, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, in, uh, in Zimmerman's case, the the ball was rolling so hard that by the time uh, Don West and Mark O'Mara, his attorneys, opened their website and said, hey, here's the actual evidence. You can find the truth here. It was too late. It was a, a drop in a sea of, of propaganda. Uh, I've, I've come to know George Zimmerman. Uh, I met him after the trial. I was, I was provisionally retained by his first attorney, Craig Sonner, when I say provisionally, I, I don't take a case until I've seen dis- all complete discovery, that is, all the evidence. And, of course, the prosecution wasn't giving anything to the defense at that point. Uh, he went from Sonner to uh, O'Mara and West. And uh, so I, I had been on Sonner's team, so I was out. I was contacted subsequently by O'Mara, uh, visited with him in March of, I want to say March of 2012. And uh, did not offer to do the case for free. He took an, They were short on money. They took an expert who did take it for free. And they, that expert did an excellent job and contributed greatly to the acquittal. But uh, to this day, more than a decade later, they're saying that racist George Zimmerman. Well, it started out as uh, he killed an innocent black child who, by the way, towered over him who uh, satisfy his racist bloodlust. And then uh, some of the reporters, you know, checked with the motor vehicle department and said, hey, uh, on his uh, driver's license, it says he's Hispanic. So then he became white Hispanic to, to fuel the whole thing. What they missed, damn it, George Zimmerman is one-eighth African-American himself on his mother's side. Okay, and you go back to 1950, in the South where he lived, in Florida where he lived, they wouldn't have allowed him in a whites-only restaurant or bathroom. They would have called him an octoroon because he was one-eighth African-American. Okay. They ignored the fact that was that was a, ma- a matter of record. Zimmerman and his wife, for a long time, had been mentoring underprivileged black kids as volunteers. Okay. He had gotten himself uh, a whole lot of bitterness and dislike from his local police department when he was instrumental in a protest against a, a violent incident that had been perpetrated against a, a young black man in that community. And yet they called him a racist. Uh, 
And to this day, they do it because they heard it so much from the mass media. It must be true. The the guy with the megaphone drowns out the, the person with the calm voice. And we see this again and again in these cases. I, I tell people breaking news is broken news. Don't be, if you're gonna if you're gonna judge, do what a jury would do. Wait to hear the evidence before you render your judgment, and that means evidence from both sides. And oftentimes, the evidence of the defense does not come out. Well said. Wait to hear the evidence. You hear that, good people? Wait to hear the evidence before you judge. I like that. All right, Maz. Next question for you, sir. How does the role of God or spiritual matters fit into your philosophy of defense? I read an article where you discussed the Mark of Cain about your time in Chicago. Can you discuss that a bit and how that informed your philosophy? That was very interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the Mark of Cain is uh, the term was coined by uh, Dalton Walter Gorski, uh, the uh, great police psychologist back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Mark of Cain means after you've had to shoot someone, and even the most righteous self-defense, people are going to treat you differently. Uh, ending someone else's life is, by definition, a larger-than-life act, and people are always going to remember it. Uh, you can't say Teddy Kennedy, for example, without someone answering Chappaquiddick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're no longer seen as you know the good neighbor, the good friend, uh, the good professional at what you do. You're seen as he or she who killed, and it changes the way other people treat you and your family. And that will change the way you see yourself and and the way you feel. Uh, uh, the, the bad side of it is obviously what you saw with George Zimmerman, the classic example, which you're seeing now Rittenhouse going through. Mm-hmm. On the other side, even with some of the great heroes, if you look at the, uh, the two men who stopped the, uh, the church massacres in Texas, uh, Stephen Williford in the first one who uh, shot the killer, chased him down, and the killer was probably dying when he finally finished himself off. And uh, Jack Wilson in the second church, the bad guy opens fire, gets off a couple of shots, and from 15 yards away, that was a hell of Jack a shot, Wilson, oh, Jack Wilson put a 357 oh. SIG bullet through and through the bastard's head. I saw and that. And ended Man. the threat and saved God knows how many people's lives. Yes. Both of those men, when they when they speak of the incident, will preface everything with, I am not a hero. Because nobody ever sees them anymore as the good neighbor, the good churchgoer, et cetera, et cetera. They're the guy who got famous for killing so-and-so. Yes. So yes. Th- that's where the Mark Cain syndrome comes from. Okay. And, and it makes sense, and it makes me think of a situation Back when I lived in Michigan, this had to be in 2008, 2009. Um, this guy I, I knew at the time, knew him from high school. We were in, in our early, early to mid twenties at the time, and uh, I wasn't over his house, but he had he had several people over his over his house. They were playing cards, having drinks, and um, someone knocked on his door. They lived in an apartment building, and uh, one of the guys that was inside the apartment with this guy. He opened the door and he started running his mouth at, his, at this guy. He goes, oh, no, you, that person you're looking for doesn't live here. And it pissed the guy off. So the guy was with two other guys and he made a call. He called like five other guys and they, they were there in like 10 or 15 minutes. They come back to his apartment. They forced their way in and it's just this big brawl 
just erupts. So the guy that I know, he grabbed a knife and he, he, he killed the guy, you know, he wound up stabbing the guy to death and the guy actually fell over the balcony. But from that point on, just as you mentioned, he was treated different by everyone around him, everyone. And it's unfortunate because it was an act of self-defense because this person came in his home and he defended himself in his home and his wife, you know, because his wife was there too. But he told me how his, you know, obviously his life changed, but he told me even though he, he went to court, it was a long drawn out trial and he was found not guilty, you know, and, you know, for self-defense. But, you know, like you said, he, he told me that he was treated differently by yeah. everybody, including family too. And uh, that that's unfortunate, but that's uh, I suppose that's the world we live in. Huh? Interesting, interesting. Um, next question for you. Um, what's up with you in the NRA? I saw something where you 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 have some conf- conflicting views. What's what's that about? Well, I'm not sure uh, where that was. Uh... NRA is under a lot of fire. I'm certainly not going to criticize uh, the the longest standing gun owner civil rights group in the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, I, I still belong to NRA. I'm a life member. I uh, have been for literally most of my life, uh, probably since uh, my teenage years. Um, essentially, there are many of us, many groups in the gun owner civil rights movement, and as much as possible, we try to work together for the common good and the common cause. So I'm not sure, uh, I don't recall ever bad-mouthing the NRA. Um, it, you know, we might uh, approach a given problem differently, but basically we're, we're on the same side. Okay, I thought I had read something in regards to the registration of firearms. It might have been something else, though. Yeah, it might have been something else. So, no, no uh, I don't think I don't think either of us, uh, either their organization or any that I belong to, uh, want registered firearms. The history of firearms registration is that it serves only to ultimately confiscate them from legitimate owners. Mm, okay, okay, okay. And you know, having you here has been been such a treat, Maz. And you know, I I can't let you go without asking you about, uh, which may be a, a, a challenging conversation for some because people have been affected by it. And that obviously is school shootings as well as mass shootings. So I would love to have your thoughts on what you believe needs to be done to minimize gun violence as well as mass yeah. and school shootings. Well, we have to look at both deterrence and interdiction. And so far as you know, pre- preventing people from getting the idea uh, that genie has been out of the bottle for a quarter century or so. Now, in 1999, after the uh, the Columbine atrocity that you know inspired the next generation of psychopaths, uh, I made the point, as many others did on our side, that look, we've seen the answer, and the answer goes back to the mid 1970s in Israel. Uh, after the terrorists murdered those children at the school in Meilat, the uh, the Israeli government approved uh, the the use of volunteers who would be in the school armed, usually relatives and friends of the, the kids who were there, and arming school personnel themselves. Uh, they were trained by the Mishmar Israhi, which is we don't really have an analog in this country. <clears throat> 
It's sort of the Israeli civil guard, kind of a cross between National Guard, civil defense, and law enforcement. But since that program was put in place, the attacks on children in school virtually stopped. And I say virtually, there was the occasional one, but when it happened, that be at the first outbreak of gunfire, someone cut down the killer. And pretty soon, the terrorists decided this is not a viable plan. Uh, I'm ready to go in a blaze of glory. Uh, getting shot in the back of the head by Miss Grundy, the school teacher, is not my idea of a blaze of glory. Uh, gee, maybe I'll fight for my cause some other way. And we've seen much the same in Peru and in the Philippines. But in the, the educational setting, particularly the educators' associations, tend to be very left of center politically, and I don't think anyone including them would, would deny that. And in this whole thing of pigeonhole politics, if I identify as progressive, I must be anti-gun. Uh, they get this horrified, oh no, we must never have guns in the school. Well, if you look at history, if you go back into the 1990s, uh, the killer who shot up the, uh, the Jewish daycare center in California was captured alive, one of the rare ones who was. And they said, why in hell did you pick that place? And he said, well, I was going to shoot up a synagogue, but I thought they might have armed guards, so I didn't think there'd be armed guards at the daycare center. And from the beginning, it's become apparent the gun-free zone is a hunting preserve for the psychopathic murderer who preys on human beings. By definition, it's the one place he knows he can go where no one will, will threaten him. We saw that in the recent Tennessee school shooting as well. Uh, they have not, at the, the time of our discussion now, released that sick psychopath's manifesto. But that person did make it clear on social media that, gee, this, the, my first target didn't look too promising. I thought they might have security, so I'm going to go to this one. And we've seen that again and again. <clears throat> uh, the studies of Professor John Lott show that more than 90% of the mass murders have taken place in designated gun-free zones. Now, the school, the people who have followed the Israeli model, uh, many schools in Florida, a great many schools in Ohio, many schools in Texas, but unfortunately not Uvalde. None of those schools have been attacked. <clears throat> and the reason is, they will generally make it clear to the public, either in press releases or some are actually posting signs saying school personnel are armed, any threat to the children will be met with deadly force. Nice. Well, that's telling you, this is not the place where I can kill as many innocent people as I want and set the sick record for for my sick friends on, on the dark web. The, uh, the, the, school, uh, the community where I live, uh, they made it clear to the public, the superintendent of schools said in the front page story in the local newspaper, let me be clear, if you come to our schools to harm our children, we will kill you. There have been no attacks. We need the deterrent and the interdiction. Someone has to be there at the moment of the attack. Once the shooting starts, someone has to survive long enough to call 911. 911 dispatcher has to notify the officers. The officers have to get there. We're in a, a country of 330 plus million people now. 
with fewer than 800,000 cops. Do the math. We, we can't have a cop on every doorstep. The progressives want police out of the schools because they intimidate the, the poor, ch- disadvantaged children. Oh, my Lord. So, essentially, we, we need a change in mindset. We need to recognize this has become a, a trend crime. In the old days, perhaps there are still some who say it. In the old days, psychologists and psychopath, uh, psychologists were fond, psychiatrists and psychologists were fond of saying one out of every hundred people may be a psychopath. Well, 330 million, one out of a hundred, do the math. Maybe we're lucky we have as few going nuts and committing mass murders as we do. But psychopaths like sociopaths tend to be very protective of themselves. And even the one who has decided he wants to die in a sick blaze of glory does not want that blaze of glory to fail when he gets shot after he's pulled the trigger once or twice. So there is the the, the deterrence and the interdiction capability feed off one another. If there's someone present right there on the ground that can stop one of these things when it breaks out, we're going to minimize loss of innocent life. If the next psychotic predator realizes he's not going to fulfill his sick dreams, we have discouraged and deterred it. It's win-win, but we cannot seem to get past this prevailing mentality of that empty symbolism of the gun as evil, the gun as blue-collar, the gun as MAGA, or the gun as white supremacist, or the gun as whatever. And it drives me nuts, and I have a feeling you share the same sentiment. Yes, sir. Yes, I do. It's it's ridiculous. It is truly ridiculous. You know, I wanted to ask you about police shootings as well. Um, obviously, there are ones that are justified, and some may say there are others that are where de- the use of deadly force was not necessary. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, police departments being trained properly? Obviously, you've done a lot of training, et cetera, and have you s- seen video of police shootings where you said to yourself, okay, this guy didn't handle this situation properly. Yeah, I've seen some where I said, okay, uh, you need to stop shooting now, son. But at the same time, I wasn't the one who was so terrified that I was about to be killed. Okay. So all of us have to, all of us have to do, if we're going to be the court of a public opinion, we have to do what the real courts do, put ourselves in the, 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 position of the defendant, and follow what's known as the reasonable person doctrine. And it's a three-pronged test. We have to ask ourselves, what would a reasonable, prudent person have done in this exact same situation? Not what somebody's telling me happened, but what the evidence actually shows happened. And third, knowing what that person knew at the time they did the act for which they're being judged. Uh, When it's police, People think, ooh, the Graham versus Connor decision gave police the power to kill anybody they're remotely scared of. That's not true at all. Anyone who actually studies that decision in 1989, uh, Graham versus Connor simply took that long until 1989 to give the cops what every American citizen has had since the time they were English colonists because it evolved from the English common law, the reasonable person doctrine. And in the Graham uh, decision, uh, which is now the guiding light legally for police use of deadly force, the standard is simply what would a reasonable, prudent, trained, and experienced police officer have done in exactly that situation 
knowing what that officer knew at the time. And the wording of the United States Supreme Court in Graham versus Connor said, we must not apply 2020 hindsight. We must always look at this through the lens of a tense, rapidly evolving situation. Okay. And I think, my friend, that is what all of us have to do, whether it's a cop or a private citizen who used that degree of force to apply that standard. What would we have done in that exact same situation, knowing what they knew at the time? And bearing in mind that it might have the decision might have had to be made in as little as a second or even a fraction of thereof. What about a situation where a civilian is um, carries a firearm? He or she has their CCW. They they've been you know using firearms and receive extensive training over numbers of years. They go to court. Is it possible that that training can be used against them in the court of law? Have you seen that happen well, before? I've seen them try to do it. Uh, you know, say, ooh, he's so obsessed with killing, he went to death camp or, or something like that. Uh, go ahead and throw me in that briar patch, Briar Fox. Uh, your, your listeners can look up a, uh, a great legal study uh, that was uh, done, uh, I want to say, around 2007, 2008, by attorney Lisa Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. And the title was Defending the Deadly Force Case. Or, I'm sorry, Defending the Self-Defense Case. Now, for context, <clears throat> excuse me, Lisa Steele is an appellate attorney who specializes in self-defense cases that went wrong at the trial level and uh, resulted in a conviction, and she works to win them an appeal and a new trial. She is, in my opinion, unquestionably the best at that particular specialty. That article appeared in Champion, the publication of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. She was writing that for her peers, trial lawyers, trying to show them how to not screw up a perfectly good self-defense case by using the usual guilt mitigation strategies that uh, defense lawyers use for clients they know damn well are guilty to protect their constitutional rights. And one of the points she made was that the trained person is absolutely more defensible than the untrained. First, every single person who trained them can be brought in as a material witness whose testimony, in essence, is going to be, yeah, they did exactly what I trained them to do. This is what we trained them to do. This is why we trained them to do that. And it's the standard of, uh, of common custom and practice, and it's even best practices repeated by every single instructor you've trained with. Now, one of the things we found, and one of the reasons we're winning so many so many of these cases, is that we show the, the triers of the facts, the judge in a bench trial, the jury in a jury trial, the defendant did what they were trained to do, and what they were trained to do was, in fact, the right thing to do. And let the jury figure out what the defendant can't say, but their, uh, their attorney might say in opening or closing, that this case was brought by someone with a political motive who either doesn't understand or doesn't care. Here is how stuff happens in the real world. We've got one second to decide, does this predator have a right to murder me and take me away from my children? Wow. 
Okay. Okay. Then I want to ask you about the insurance as well. Is the insurance legit? Would you recommend someone getting that, getting the, the insurance? You know, when I, when I purchased my firearms back in 2020, um, the, the gun dealer, he, he recommended that I get this, this insurance. I, it's, it's a couple of different major companies out there. Um, I'm sure it's a lot of companies out there, but do you I'm recommend that for that. people? Well, I recommend post-self-defense support. Uh, <clears throat> the one I'm involved with, and therefore the one I recommend, I'm on the Board of Advisors, okay. is Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network, the one we mentioned earlier created by Marty Hayes, who still runs it. Um, we've done probably going on 30 cases now, all of them with the best possible outcome. Nice. Uh, but it's not insurance. It's a, a mutual, essentially mutual support by fellow members. Okay. Uh, Basically, uh, we have an advisory board that's also on tap to advise the uh, whichever attorney you choose. Either we provide one or we pay the one you choose. And we, if, if that attorney hasn't done a whole lot of self-defense cases, we've got people on the board who have, who are there to advise them, well, this strategy will work better for this, that strategy better for that. Here's the best way to get this particular truth across to the jury that we found. And mainly, they'll pay your fees. Uh, it's not uncommon at all for the, the criminal defense case, if it goes to trial, the self-defense case with criminal charges, if it goes to trial, to go over you know six figures in legal fees, court costs, and all of that. Uh, the Zimmerman case went into seven figures. Uh, the Rittenhouse case went over a million dollars. And I thank all the people who donated to the uh, defense fund for, for that young man and oh, yeah. and won that acquittal. Um, I did one case last year that it cost the defendant $300,000 before he finally won his acquittal. And he had been looking at life without parole if he had been acquitted. And the death penalty was not exactly off the table either. In a case that we showed a jury was clearly self-defense. So, yeah, I think belonging to somebody who's going to pay your legal fees for a hundred some odd dollars a year Definitely is a, it's not insurance if you get it through ACLDN. They're at armedcitizensnetwork.org, but it's a damn good investment. Armedcitizensnetwork.org. Okay. I'm going to definitely look them up. Okay, cool. All right, Mass, just two final questions for you, man. Sure. Um, heard you mention something about the teller principle, and I would also like for you to tell us about disparity of force. Sure. Uh, the Tuller principle <clears throat> goes back to a man I'm proud to call a friend and a colleague, uh, who is, in fact, a member of the advisory board of ACLDN that we were just discussing, okay. uh, Dennis Tuller. Uh, at that time, he was a sergeant, uh, later retired as lieutenant in the Salt Lake City, Utah Police Department. Uh, he had he was teaching his officers the draw and shoot in, uh, you know, reactive draw and shoot two shots at seven yards in a second and a half, which is pretty damn good. But Dennis is a pretty damn good instructor. One of the students, this was 1983, said, well, if a guy was coming at me from seven yards away, uh, how far would he have gotten before I shot him? And Dennis said, you know, that's a very good question. So he tested it. And he found out average adult male from a standing start, 21 feet away, would close the gap and strike with a weapon in 1.5 seconds. And that taught a few things. It taught, first, uh, if the other guy is standing there with a knife threatening you, 
You don't stand here with your hands in the air in a competition shooting start position and say, okay, your move. You get their gun pointed at him now and tell him don't move. But it also showed the, it, it was really the entry point of police training accepting human dynamics, human physical and psychological dynamics as as part of the training and not just the rules of the law. And of course, the, the rules of the law have to encompass the realities of life. Uh, it's probably the single most proven element of what we now call force science, a term coined by Professor Bill Lewinsky. And uh, it's not a rule. You know, people have misinterpreted it as, oh, if he's 22 feet away, you can't shoot him uh, until he crosses that 21-foot line. But if he's 19 feet away, you've got to shoot him. And no, it depends on the circumstances. If he's lunging at you from 30 feet, he's still probably going to stab you in two seconds instead of a second and a half. Uh, the reason being, the longer you run, the more momentum you gain and the proportionally faster you can move. Uh, if he's standing at 19 yards with a glazed look at his eye and the knife hanging down by his side and he's not moving, it's not time to shoot yet. So that's why you correctly called it Tuller Principle, and a whole lot of folks who don't know what you know uh, call it a rule. When it's not a rule, it's simply a guideline. But it, it profoundly affected the way uh, dynamics of violent encounters were taught and recognized, both in law enforcement and in the armed citizen private sector. Uh, the disparity of force is one of the most misunderstood elements. I've met attorneys been through three years of law school and passed a bar exam and had never heard the term disparity of force. In the Rittenhouse case that you mentioned and, and other cases, we've heard prosecutors yelling, it can never be self-defense to shoot an unarmed man. And I'm like, where did you get that from? A cowboy movie? Because you know, that, that's not what the law says. Disparity of force means the person who's violently attacking you may not have a weapon per se. He may not have a gun, a knife, a club. But his physical advantage over you is so great that if this violent attack continues, you're likely to be killed or crippled. Okay. Uh, now, that disparity of force, the most obviously, would be multiple opponents, force of numbers, uh, the guy who's way bigger and stronger than you, generally, as a general rule, male attacking female, Certainly adult attacking a little child as opposed to a six foot three, eighteen year old that a plaintiff's lawyer wants to call a child. Uh, uh, the handicapped attacked by the able bodied, uh, even if the handicap has taken place in the course of the immediate assault, and uh, a position of disadvantage. Uh, we both mentioned the uh, Zimmerman case. You might actually be a little bit heavier than the other guy. But he's got you down, he's banging your head against the sidewalk, and you can't break free anyway else. And you know in a minute your brains are going to be all over that sidewalk. Mm -hmm. The sidewalk, as his defense lawyers correctly argued, became the deadly weapon in the hands of his assailant. Uh, the head smashing into the sidewalk is a whole not a whole lot different than a chunk of concrete smashing into the head. <laughs> and the law has, and the case law, you now the case law being the... Uh, the, the the decisions that came down from the courts of appeal that guide the lower courts, the trial courts, and how the, what we colloquially call the black letter law, the statutes and the codes, have to be applied in certain circumstances. Disparity of force is there, but it's not generally known to the public, 
and an amazing number of attorneys either don't know it exists or know it exists and for political reasons don't want the jury to know it. Damn politics. And I find that tragic and appalling. Yes, absolutely. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Okay, okay. Very good. Okay. Now, I do have to ask you one last. I know I said the other two were the last one, but this is something I ask each and every guest. Sounds like you've been to law school. (laughs) So I need to ask you this. I ask each and every guest. If you would leave our listeners with what I call a token of love, something that you think they need to hear in this moment that they can take with them as they continue their personal journeys, what would you tell them? Uh, What I tell them would be I'd I'd fill out the other half of something they've heard half of. Uh, You don't need me to tell you that with great power comes great responsibility. And carrying or even possessing a lethal weapon is great power that demands great responsibility. Now, if you did a word association test and asked the average American today, who said great power demands great responsibility? Most people are going to say Spider-Man's uncle. And (laughs) yeah, he did say that. But it's kind of sad that that's where people remember it from. Because Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it a whole long, long time before Spider-Man at the beginning of World War II. And I'm sure if you go back enough in a Greco-Roman history, some ancient philosophers said it millennia ago. But even then, it's only half of the situation. It's, it's only half of, of the globe, if you will. The flip side of it is with great responsibility must come commensurate power. Power and responsibility have to be held in a dead equal balance. Because... We've already recognized if you have great power without responsibility, you have tyranny. But hear me, if you have great responsibility protecting your innocent loved ones from homicidal evil, if you don't have the power to fulfill that responsibility, it is the very definition of futility. Yes, it is. Well said. Thank you so much for that, Nas. Thank you, thank you, thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Um, quick, real quick, I know you said it earlier, if you could let our listeners know where they can find you, your website, any other website, social media that you would like to share? Uh, well, I have a blog at backwoodshome.com, B-A-C-K-W-O-O-D-S, not backwards, home, uh, backwoodshome.com. I've had that since about 2007, and all of your listeners are welcome to come in and join and partake in the conversation. Uh, my work appears in pretty much every issue of uh, Guns Magazine, American Handgunner Magazine, Backwoods Home Magazine, uh, Combat Handguns Magazine, and Shooting Illustrated Magazine. And uh, a whole lot of that can be found at, uh, for free at the websites, uh, gunsmagazine.com, etc. Uh, they're all easy to find on Google. Uh, my website for training is massadayoob group.com. Uh, the easiest way to get any of my books, there's about 20 or so out, uh, would be on uh, Amazon. And the most current ones are on uh, uh, their Gun Digest publications. So gundigeststore.com, I believe, is where they go for those. And I just did my first audio book on uh, Deadly Force. So I obviously have a good face for radio. We'll see if I have a good voice for radio. 
<laughs> you have an excellent voice, man. And thank you so much for this conversation. It's been phenomenal. You are so knowledgeable, very, very knowledgeable, and you are doing your purpose. You are leaving your footprint on the world in a positive way. And for that, I thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for all you're doing to spread the truth to your listeners and viewers. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And to our audience, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hidden Gateway podcast as much as I did. It always, as always, stay connected with us at thehiddengateway.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like to uh, chat with us at support at thehiddengateway.com. And thank you for always pushing your mindset towards a better reality. Now, this will conclude this week's episode. Until next time, as always, stay positive, stay questioning, be love, and be free. The Hidden Gateway, out.